You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about breastfeeding. Joining me is Dr. Lori Feldman-Winter, who is a professor of pediatrics at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University and member of the Division of Adolescent Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at the Children's Regional Hospital at Cooper University Healthcare in Camden, New Jersey. Dr. Feldman-Winter is recognized nationally and internationally for her work related to breastfeeding education programs and nutrition policy. She's chair of the AAP section on breastfeeding, AAP representative to the United States Breastfeeding Committee, a board member of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, and member of the editorial board of the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal. That's a lot of things, and it doesn't even really cover everything that you do, Dr. Feldman-Winter, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So we're talking about breastfeeding, and the AAP, in line with many other professional organizations, recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life. So my first question for you is, can you explain what the benefits are of breastfeeding that make this recommendation so important? Certainly. So breastfeeding is a very important health intervention. It really matters for not only the health of the baby, but also for the health of the mother. In 2018, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality did a systematic review looking at hundreds of studies and concluded that regarding mothers, breastfeeding can reduce the risk of breast and ovarian cancer, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. And then regarding babies, it's estimated that we could save millions of dollars because of the health outcomes that are protected through exclusive breastfeeding. And in particular, we can reduce the chance of infants dying from sudden infant death syndromes, unexpected infant death, as well as diseases such as hospitalizations to lower respiratory tract infections and severe diarrheal disease, the latter two of which is really related to the exclusivity of breastfeeding, meaning exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months. And so... You've mentioned that there are a lot of benefits to both the mother and the baby, but despite those benefits, there are some contraindications to breastfeeding. So what conditions should preclude breastfeeding? And we're specifically talking about the United States because we know that things are different in different countries. So in the U.S., what conditions are contraindications? Right. So fortunately, there are relatively rare strict contraindications to breastfeeding, but there are a few that we should note. With regard to the baby, there's only one strict contraindication, and that is the classic form of galactosemia. Makes sense because the primary sugar carbohydrate in human milk is lactose. The other contraindications are in the mother, and these are complicated, but there are some that we need to take note of for the United States. Mothers that have HIV or HCLV virus 1 and 2 are contraindicated to breastfeed because there's a safe alternative in infant formula. In addition, mothers that are using illicit substances 
and mothers that have certain infections that haven't been treated yet, such as mothers with untreated active tuberculosis, are recommended not to breastfeed until they've been treated. In addition, mothers undergoing radiation therapy for cancer treatment, and then a few other infections require temporary separation, such as mothers with untreated varicella infections or mothers that might have herpes simplex lesions on the breast. Lastly, there are a number of medications that are contraindicated in breastfeeding. Most of the time, medications are not contraindicated, but it's super important that we know which ones are and which ones aren't. So we don't inadvertently tell mother to not breastfeed because of medication that she's taking. Moving to some clinical things, exclusive breastfeeding is a clinical risk factor for hyperbilirubinemia. Can you explain the relationship between breastfeeding and jaundice? Yes. So it is true that exclusively breastfed newborns will have a higher level of bilirubin. The real question is whether or not that higher level of bilirubin will lead to significant hyperbilirubinemia and the thing that we all fear, which is carnicterous. And the truth is, is that we have this, what we call vagintophobia or fear of 20, um, because we worry so much about the reabsorption of bilirubin and then the eventual high levels of bilirubin that might lead to connectress. But as long as breastfeeding gets off to a good start and the infant doesn't have suboptimal intake, then the bilirubin levels can be held at a safe level where it doesn't lead to that horrible outcome of carnicterus. So high levels of bilirubin, in fact, are not harmful. In fact, they're maybe even helpful because bilirubin itself is an antioxidant. It's really being able to recognize the babies that have suboptimal intake. And then in addition, there are certain newborns that are at higher risk of having even higher levels of bilirubin because the enzyme required to conjugate bilirubin and then rid it from the body, which is glucuronotransferase, is made in increasing amounts, sort of exponentially increasing amounts during that last trimester, really during that last month of gestation. And so even if a baby is one, two, or three weeks early, there's going to be lower levels of glucuronotransferase, and it's more likely that that baby may get into trouble with very high levels of bilirubin. So gestational age matters, and then there's a variety of other risk factors that confound breastfeeding to make bilirubin problematic. And and it's important that we identify those risk factors and then monitor the infant intake and really support the beginning of breastfeeding. And when we do that, in fact, what's been shown is that you can actually decrease the likelihood of significant hyperbilirubinemia. Do you ever advise mothers to stop breastfeeding because of their jaundice? So the first step is to really recognize where babies are in terms of their risk of severe neurotoxicity and whether or not they have optimal intake. If they don't have suboptimal intake, if they're feeding well, then we don't need to recommend cessation of breastfeeding, but really optimizing the stool output, really optimizing the baby stooling, because that's one way that the bilirubin will be excreted. And that's helpful with frequent suckling. So with the gastrocolic reflex, that helps to rid the bilirubin by excretion through the stool. 
And then we might recommend phototherapy as a way to bring the bilirubin down as long as the baby has reached that phototherapy threshold. The reason to supplement really is in situations where there's truly suboptimal intake and the mother's not yet making sufficient milk. She hasn't yet transitioned from that first phase of lactogenesis to the second phase of lactogenesis and beginning to make copious amounts of milk. Or for whatever reason, the milk's not being transferred to the baby because of a latching problem or a suckling problem in the baby. Sometimes we can just express mother's own milk and then feed it to the baby using alternative means, again, avoiding unnecessary supplementation. So another area where sometimes we hear about supplementation or run into breastfeeding issues are infants born to diabetic moms, those who are late preterm, small for gestational age, or large for gestational age, are at increased risk for hypoglycemia. So how do we manage hypoglycemia in breastfeeding newborns? Absolutely. There's a variety of conditions, both for the mother and the newborn, that places them at risk for hypoglycemia. And I would say that these conditions are actually increasing with the prevalence of obesity. So because we have more mothers entering into gestation that are obese, they're more likely to have not only gestational diabetes, but longstanding type 2 diabetes. And so it's not an infrequent situation that the baby will be at risk for hypoglycemia. First and foremost, one of the ways that's been shown to reduce the likelihood of hypoglycemia is to provide what is called for in the fourth step of the 10 steps to successful breastfeeding, and that is immediate skin-to-skin care. In a Cochrane review, we actually showed that you can increase the glucose levels in babies by about 11 milligram per deciliter just by placing that baby skin-to-skin uninterrupted for at least that first hour. And then during that time, the baby can actually feed. So not only is the skin-to-skin care itself stabilizing the blood sugar, but then the baby actually gets some nutrition and sugar via that first breastfeed. And then we have about an hour to an hour and a half to check that first glucose level. And using different algorithms, we can determine whether or not a baby needs to have an additional treatment. One of the areas of recent research has been utilizing buccal glucose gel to support continued exclusive breastfeeding as a way to avoid unnecessary supplementation to be able to maintain a baby's glucose level, which can be really helpful, especially for babies that are uh, large for gestational age, born to mothers that have gestational or longstanding type 2 diabetes. But if a baby is hypoglycemic and asymptomatic, is the first step to give them glucose or would you recommend that they try breastfeeding again and recheck? So the First step these days is really to manage a hypoglycemic baby, but not symptomatic with glucose gel and then support to feed at the breast. The problem is just like we've learned for a long time with Whipple's triad, which basically says that low blood sugar can become symptomatic and the resolution is with giving glucose, that's the triad that sometimes if we wait too long, babies will become symptomatic and then we can no longer feed them enterally. So really to avoid the complications of low glucose, glucose gel is really one way to offset the loss really of 
being able to feed directly at the breast. So keeping the baby skin to skin, providing buccal glucose gel and supporting exclusive breastfeeding is really the best way to manage continued exclusive breastfeeding. One of the things that I hate to hear in the first few hours or days of a baby's life is that the mother's milk isn't in. I understand that some use this to distinguish early colostrum from the later copious amounts of milk, but both are milk. So can you help walk me through lactogenesis and the timing of when milk is in or what people are calling that? Yeah, I think it's so important that we understand that there are different phases of lactogenesis. Um, each with not only different volumes or amounts of milk that are made, but also the composition of human milk changes dramatically throughout these different phases of lactogenesis. So lactogenesis actually begins at 16 weeks gestation, which is why a mother who delivers a premature baby actually is making milk. She's making colostrum because that whole first phase, lactogenesis one, of making milk produces colostrum. Colostrum is rich in nutrients that are a little different from milk that mothers make later on during lactation. The primary goal of early milk or colostrum is really to set the stage for the infant's immune system to function properly for life. It actually has 10 to the seventh white blood cells, as well as embryonic stem cells and a variety of bioactive substances that set the stage for a normal microbiome, and a normal immune system. Many of the cells are actually absorbed by the baby's gut and actually function. The macrophages are actually become motile and exhibit the receptors that are not only species, but family specific and function in infection fighting methods in the baby. And so during this first phase of colostrum, the amount of milk is relatively low. It doesn't take a whole lot of colostrum to actually do the work of setting the stage for the immune system and providing that first immunization, if you will, for the baby. And babies actually only get about five cc's each time they feed. And that's normal. In the first day of life, they may only get 15 to 30 cc's total. By the second day of life, it goes up a little bit to about 150 cc's, a little less after cesarean delivery than a vaginal delivery, um, but still increasing pretty rapidly until finally about two to three days following parturition, which is when the progesterone levels fall and the prolactin levels stay high and unopposed. And that's the beginning of the second phase of lactogenesis when the amount of milk becomes more copious. And so you'll see 400 to 800 cc's per day of milk being made by the mother. And so that's a period of time where babies stop losing weight and actually not only start to maintain weight, but by about day five or six, begin to gain weight. That is followed by the third phase of lactogenesis. And this is a phase that's often misunderstood because people assume it means a different composition of milk. The composition is relatively stable during the second and third phases of lactogenesis. But the third phase of lactogenesis, if it didn't happen, what would happen is moms would be engorged all the time because what's required to actually make milk but meet the needs of what the baby takes is something called autocrine control. And this is the phase of lactogenesis where a local hormone actually responds to stress receptors in the milk 
milk-producing gland and perceives whether or not milk is being removed from the breast or whether it's staying around. If milk is staying around, the rate of milk synthesis in the milk-producing alveolus is slower than if milk is being removed. And the amount of milk removed is directly correlated with the rate or the rapidity with which milk is made and then refilled into those glands. And so it's really about supply and demand. So the more the baby removes from the breast, the more rapidly the milk is made and refills. Now, this also takes into consideration one other factor, and that is milk storage. The amount of milk stored in the breast is very variable mother to mother. Some mothers have great amounts of milk storage capacity, whereas other mothers have very limited milk storage capacity. And again, that's a factor related to those stretch receptors and how soon that feedback inhibition of lactation hormone sets in. So what that results in is that a mother with low storage capacity basically just feeds more frequently to yield a total daily volume that's actually equal to a mother that might have a larger storage capacity. And perhaps that newborn takes more volume per feed, but feeds less often. And I, I think that this can be confusing for mothers, you know, and not, and a mother might question, why is my baby feeding so often? Maybe I'm not making enough or another mother, you know, may be feeding infrequently and her baby may be taking such great volumes that they may actually reflux and and spit up some of the milk, you know, overfeeding almost. So I think that, as I often say, breastfeeding is kind of like a dance, you know, I think both what the mother makes and stores in her breast and what the baby feeds and how large the baby is and what the stomach capacity is, is all very variable. And between the mother and the baby, they learn to kind of work it out over time so that the mother meets the baby's needs. So if there is inadequate intake or a delay in the lactogenesis that you just mentioned, and we turn towards formula supplementation, is there any harm to this approach? So there's no harm to this approach. In fact, there could be harm in not recognizing suboptimal intake in the newborn. Certainly that is one of the underpinning causes of babies that have hyperbilirubinemia as well as hypernatremic dehydration. So it's super important that we recognize mothers that have a delay in lactogenesis in conjunction with babies that have suboptimal intake. And that's why it's so important to follow babies first within a couple of days after going home from the birth hospital. But then if you're concerned and you haven't seen that moms have achieved lactogenesis or that the babies have begun to either level off or begin to gain weight, so important to see them at least on a daily basis to identify suboptimal intake if it does occur and then supplement when it's necessary. Now, routine supplementation, just because we're worried and not because the mother either has a delay in lactogenesis or because the baby's lost too much weight, you know, say the baby's lost 7% weight, routine supplementation is not so benign either. What we found actually is that early supplementation can actually lead to abnormal trajectories of weight in the first week. And in fact, in some cases, weight gain. And, and in our prospective cohort study, what we found is that in babies that have gained weight, like over 100 grams during the first week of life, which is in excess of what we would expect, 
they actually have a higher risk of obesity. They have two and a half times the risk of obesity at age two. So we really have to be astute at recognizing lactogenesis by identifying that transition between soft breasts and um, the volume of milk production to the time when mothers feel that their breasts are firmed, when she's making more milk, and really know the questions to ask to identify when that's actually happening, and then really do our due diligence in seeing babies often to establish whether that weight loss has ceased and whether the baby is beginning to then gain weight and turn that trajectory around. So one of my hopes for this podcast is that listeners walk away better able to support breastfeeding moms. What would one of your key takeaways be for pediatricians who are trying to support breastfeeding? So I think that one of the key issues is that, you know, we have all this information, a lot of it we're still learning. And many pediatricians have low confidence in their ability to support and manage breastfeeding. We have periodic survey data that shows that we really need to do a better job at preparing pediatricians to actually be able to assess and then manage common breastfeeding problems. But we also sometimes fail to listen to the mothers that we're caring for. And they're worried about things very very often that are different than the kinds of things that we're worried about. So we have to find ways to be better listeners and provide a safe environment so that mothers and families, their support system is comfortable and and that they trust us and they disclose their true concerns to us so that any decisions that are made are really shared and that we can provide evidence-based information, but in a way that truly respects the family's preferences and their values. That's a great point. I love always starting with that perspective of asking a mom what her breastfeeding goals are, because then I know what troubleshooting will help me help her reach her goals instead of dictating what I think my goal is, which is not always in line. And we want to support moms from where they are and what they want to get out of this experience too. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us more about breastfeeding. You've mentioned a lot of great resources, which we'll link to on our site as well. And thanks so much for supporting breastfeeding moms in the Philadelphia area along with us. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this podcast. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes, or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.